Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people engage in the love of a fiercely relational God. Come on, Lord Jesus, here we are. <clears throat> Will somebody turn up our house lights when they get an opportunity? That would be great. Good morning, everyone. I have, uh, we are going to read today about one of my favorite churches. Um, so we're in Acts uh, chapter 11, we're going to finish it, but arguably you could say that the most influential church in the history of the world was Jerusalem, uh, the church in Jerusalem, and then arguably the second most influential church in the history of the world was the church in a place called Antioch. Man, look at that. Some of you guys knew that. So I was just kind of funning around this week, and I thought, I'm going to Google, I pulled up my Google Maps, and I just Googled um, Antioch Church. And then I set my parameters for 50 miles and 100 miles and 175 miles. So within a 175-mile radius, can you guess how many churches have the name Antioch in their, like, front name? Come on, let me get a guess. 60, okay. Anybody else? I must be way up here. I can't hear you. So, Okay, we're getting close. It, it, there is 96 churches. Within a 175-mile radius, way to go. Uh, I mean, that is with the name of Antioch. So, so here's what I, I just started to ruminate on, I've been praying on, is what was it that made this church of Antioch so special? Why did God choose this church called Antioch? What was happening in the hearts and the minds of the people? Um, and, and really, as we open this door today, um, I want to pull out six reasons that I think God chose Antioch. So I would say that human free will exists within the bookends of God's sovereignty. Okay? So did God sovereignly choose Antioch? Yeah. But what was happening in the hearts and minds of the church? And a lot of times um, we, especially like Western American church, we would define church as the pastor or the leaders or the staff or the elders or whatever. But guess how God defines church? The body, that's right, the collective us. So is Michael church? Everybody say no. Michael's one of the body of the church at Saltbox. Maybe we should change our name to like Antioch Church Saltbox. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a joke. We're not changing our name. Don't worry. We're just moving locations. Okay. So what I really wanted, I, I've been wrestling with and I have always wrestled with. And what's even beautiful about this is, is Saltbox actually took a number of our core values right from what we saw in the scripture related to the church in Antioch. So we're going to open this thing up. Um, so here, here's what I would love for you to do with me today. Um, I make it a habit anytime I open my Bible to posture my heart, um, or anytime I start to pray or anytime I worship, to posture my heart to give the Holy Spirit of God freedom to speak, to convict, to lead, to change. So here's what um, I want you to say with me. And if I do my job right, we'll, come, we'll bring it back full circle at the end of this. Holy Spirit of God, what do you want me to see? You're going to say it with me in just a minute. Holy Spirit of God, what do you want me to see? Holy Spirit of God, what do you want me to know? Holy Spirit of God, what do you want me to do? Are you ready? The first one is see. Second one is no. Third one is do. All right, ready? One, two, three. Holy Spirit of God, what do you want me to see? Holy Spirit of God, what do you want me to know? And Holy Spirit of God, what do you want me to do? Amen. That was a prayer if you didn't know it. We're developing a conversational relationship 
with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, so come with me this morning. We're going to pick up in Acts 11, verse 19. But I want you to come with me to actually the city of Antioch. If you pulled it up on your Google Maps, you'd have to look up Antaka. Um, it's in modern Turkey. And if we were hanging out in the church in Jerusalem, you would go north out of Jerusalem, up through Israel, up through Lebanon, up into Syria, and then you'd cross the border right into Turkey. Um, and there is the Antioch that we're talking about here. There's a number of Antiochs um, in the Old world, and this was, was one of them, but it was certainly the most influential. So if we were in a seminary class, they would call Antioch the cradle of Christianity. The cradle of Christianity. It's the launch pad. It's the place from which uh, Christianity went from a Jewish movement with a small few thousand people to this worldwide Gentile Jewish movement that transformed arguably the entire history of the world and is still doing so. So it all goes back to this Antioch. Um, the worldwide movement began here. So this would have been the third greatest city in the world, next only to Rome and Alexandria at the time. Um, she was near a river mouth uh, named Orontes, and she was 15 miles just off the Mediterranean Sea. So she's a chief, uh, the city is a chief trade intersection between Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Mesopotamia, and she became the strategic hub, the strategic sending point for all of the New Testament church. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, or at least I was wondering, what in the world is the city like that God would choose such a wonderful city? Was she wonderful? Was she delightful? Was she, you know, was this just a great, amazing place that we all wanted to go? So she was, I would say, lovely and cosmopolitan, um, but she was a byword for luxurious immorality. Can you imagine that God, you're going you're to be, as I even tell you what's going on in this city, you're going to go, why would God choose Antioch? Okay, so she was famous for chariot racing and parties that went on night and day, but she was most famous for the worship of um, a person named Daphne, a temple of Daphne, dedicated to the Greco-Roman god Apollo. And, the, and this, um, this temple stood about five miles from town on these laurel groves. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but the essence of it went that there was a legend that this um, mortal maid named Daphne was running from this, uh, the Greco-Roman god Apollo, and Apollo was chasing her and fell in love with her. Her, and to protect her from him, she became a laurel. And so the way it worked at this temple is they had all these priestesses who were um, also prostitutes, and the way worship was done is night and day they were out reenacting what happened between um, Apollo and Daphne out in the laurel groves. So now I want you to just think for a minute. I'm not trying to be gross or nasty, but I want you to think for just a minute. What is it that God in all of his sovereignty, when he looks down at the known world at this particular time, would pick Antioch as the hub and the very cradle and the very launch point of his church? Like, what is that? Because most of us as Christians, when we find something that is um, potentially as disgusting or grotesque as what I just described, what are we going to do? Right? We're gone. We're not interested. We're going to boycott it. We're going to go out and say ugly things. We might hold signs up against it. I mean, who knows what we're going to do? We're going to talk badly about it. And instead, God in his sovereignty actually says, no, no, no. It is this city from which I'm going to launch the global church. Like, what? 
So if I would say anything to you, the first thing would be that you would, as we move towards the six reasons God chose Antioch, the first thing I would say is we must get to the point where we we acknowledge that we are not called to run from darkness. Rather, God brings light into darkness so that the, the darkness is actually driven away. So God is not afraid of evil. He is not afraid of ugliness. He is not even afraid of sin. And in fact, oftentimes God picks the places that are most dark in order to inject a true movement of God. Because when that happens, guess who gets the glory? God. I mean, it's amazing. <clears throat> so incredibly, God decides to birth the church of Antioch right here in this city. So from this dark and opulent city, Christianity became the primary religion of the known world. I mean, that's amazing to me. Okay, so let's start reading. I'm in 11, verse 19. And we're just going to pick up. We'll unpack a few things, and then I'll get to the six reasons I believe God chose Antioch. Okay, verse 19. Those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. This is a big sentence, isn't it? Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. I'm reading the NIV. Okay, so uh, what happened? What, What is that sentence saying? Stephen is... Killed, okay, he is stoned, and uh, the, the church in Jerusalem at that point was probably five, 6,000 members, we don't know exactly, and what does everybody do? They scatter, and oftentimes we view a scattering as negative, but how does God see this scattering? Divinely inspired missional living and community, it's a divine scattering, so literally, somebody said, I can't remember who said it, but the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, so God takes the death of Stephen and uses it as this um, first like uh, launch to send people all over the known world, and some of those people go to this place called Antioch. Now, what do they do? Spreading the word, what's the word? Yeah, it is the Bible. They don't have the New Testament version. They have the Old Testament. But who also is the word? Jesus, according to John 1, if you want to cross-reference that. So they uh, <clears throat> spreading the word only among who? Jews. So we're still a little racist at this point. We're still a little elitist. We don't like Gentiles, of which I am one. Okay, verse uh, 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Okay, first, just a little thought here. If, you, uh, if, you, if we were in a church of several thousand people, and one of its leaders uh, was a guy named Stephen, and Stephen was killed, would you have known him? Yeah. Would you have probably shaken his hand? Oh, not, not in, in old custom. You would have kissed his cheek, right? We didn't shake hands then. But would you have greeted him is my whole point. Yes. Could you have broken bread with him? Yes. Would you have journeyed with him? Probably. Would you have worshipped alongside of him? Yes. So what's amazing to me is that in this moment when Stephen is killed, when the church could actually shut down and run and hide, instead of um, just going into a mourning, and no doubt they mourned for Stephen, but Stephen got promoted to glory and they knew it, so they got about going out and actually sharing the gospel. They didn't go hide. They didn't go into just um, sort of woe is me or poor is me. But they actually went out and shared um, the gospel courageously, which is amazing to me. Okay, 
So some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't even know how to frame this up except to say, I think in these like few sentences, um, this is one of the greatest events in human history. It, it is, is the first time that the gospel is deliberately preached to Gentiles. So let me read it again. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also. What did they tell them? The good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people uh, believed and turned to the Lord. Now, just real quick recap. You remember, or you may not remember, but we preached through it a few weeks ago. But Philip um, first went, and he preached to the Samaritans. Now, Samaritans are half-Jews, so we got one step forward in the church. Second thing is Peter just um, preaches to Cornelius, but it's at the initiative of Cornelius. So this is the first time anywhere in Scripture where we have people deliberately preaching the gospel, deliberately carrying the gospel to non-Jewish people. And what's amazing is it's like a nameless, faceless move. All we know is they're men from Cyprus and Cyrene. That's all we know. I can't wait to meet them in heaven. It's one of my things. I'm like, Jesus, can I, can I know who were who the men from Cyprus and Cyrene that were so bold to um, really, uh, in an intentional way, break the, the racial dividing barriers between Jew and Gentiles? Because that is incredible. They were following the leading and the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> okay, uh, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned towards the Lord. Okay, uh, verse 22. Um, Let me go back to verse 21. The the Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand was with them. If, If I want anything for this church, it would not be that we have the coolest building or the best seats or our worship or our preaching or our yellow truck or any of the things that God may or may not do in us and through us. But if there's anything I would want for this church that people would say and we would be known as the place that God's hand is with. Surely the presence of the Lord is in that place. In fact, Lord Jesus, would you birth in us a place that your hand graciously rests. And Father, may it be true that this is a place where your presence and your gracious hand sits. And Holy Spirit, we give you permission to remove anything that would keep that from being so fulfilled. Amen. Verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so what's what's in Jerusalem? Come on, what's in Jerusalem? It's, it is the church. It's not, they don't have denominations. There's no splits. It is the church. There is one church. Um, it is the universal church. It is in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem's there meeting, and there's still several thousand people probably gathering in pockets all over the place. And news reaches them. So what is this news? There's a bunch of knuckleheads out there who are intentionally preaching Jesus to the Gentiles and God seems to be showing up. Now, when someone goes outside their bounds or colors outside the lines, what do most people usually do? We're going to shut that mess down, man. That's a threat. That is, that is at risk of hurting our church. We're going to go, nope, 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 don't do that. So they're going to send who? 
Now, this is fascinating to me because Barnabas is about to go, and Barnabas is probably one of the most unsung heroes in the entire New Testament because if they sent a person who was angry or a person who was religious or a person who was narrow-minded and unable to see the fullness of what God might be doing in this present time, he could have shut the entire thing down. Like, what if Barnabas would have actually rolled up and said, no, 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 we don't do it that way, and no, we don't share with the Greeks, and no, 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 we don't like them, and they're not allowed into our meetings. And if he threw down a bunch of rules, then the absolute um, fabric and nature of Christianity as we know it would be totally shifted. Barnabas is, he's known as the son of encouragement. He's probably one of the most kind and gentle souls in the New Testament. So let's read verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Spencer, I'm still a little hot on this microphone. Will you just pull me down a little bit? Uh, Verse 23. When he arrived, who's he? Barnabas. And saw the grace of what God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. I I, I don't know even, it's like I can't even put this into words, but if he would have shown up with a critical or an angry spirit, if he would have shown up with presumptions or assumptions, oh, God only does this, God only uses this kind of worship, and God only uses these kind of buildings, and God only uses people who dress like this, or people who sound like this, or people who are from here, if he showed up with any of those things and he stamped out this movement, this fledgling infant movement of Christianity could have been stamped. Now, stomp, stamped out. Now, do I think that God in his sovereignty was going to let that happen? No, but I want you to grasp and understand that when we as people move into situations and we first move into the situation to um, force or push our will, our way, our perception, our rightness without pausing to seek, know, and understand and even positioning our hearts uh, with great humility before the Lord so that we can see what he's doing, we are liable and probably at risk to miss the presence and power of the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, when he arrived, he saw the grace of what God had done. He was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that. And faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for who? Oh, Saul. I love Saul. He's about to be Paul. I'm going to call him Paul. Or he started to go by his Roman name, Paul, but regardless. Um, So at this point, you'd have to go back and listen a few sermons ago, but I talked about um, a silent decade. So this is the ending of a silent decade in Paul's life where the best guess I have and, and most of the theologians I've read would suggest he's probably in Tarsus. He's probably sitting in a little cramped workshop and he's sewing leather tents. And he's also probably studying the Old Testament. He's sharing Jesus as he can, but he has been isolated. He's probably frustrated. He's like, God, I figured you'd call me to, to be this apostle to like the known world. And here I am just sewing my tent in my little workshop. And all of a sudden, what's God do? 
Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. What I think is also amazing here is Barnabas must have known that this fledgling, fledgling little church, this movement of Christianity, Barnabas must have been able to see that there's this move from Jerusalem over to Antioch, and the cradle of Christianity is beginning, the launch pad of Christianity is beginning. And if we don't bring in someone who understands the Jewish tradition, but who has compassion and a full open heart to the new Gentile move, who can bring those two things together, then this this little fledgling movement is at risk of going off the rails. You follow me? So all of a sudden, Barnabas goes, who better than this Saul, because he was Pharisee of Pharisees, he's persecuted the church, and I'm going to go get the very person who persecuted the church. Now, who is responsible for killing Stephen? Saul. Okay, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Verse 19 that we started with, the beginning of the verses we started with. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. Okay, so Paul or Saul is responsible for killing who? Stephen. And then the church, what? A scatter. And when they scatter, what do they do? Preach Jesus big and bold. They're unashamed. So people are coming to Christ. Churches are being started. There's like mild organized chaos going on because it's all happening under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Then after 10 years, Barnabas is sent by Jerusalem probably to shut down this movement because they don't trust what's happening. So Barnabas rolls in and not only does he not shut it down, he goes, man, the presence of God is here. This is really good. We need to fan this flame. So I know the perfect person, the one who was responsible for the scattering in the first place. So he rolls over to Tarsus and he picks up this guy named Saul, who has been arrogant and humbled. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him where? Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now, I'm not going to go back, but what I suggested to you is Paul spent probably three years between Mount Sinai and Damascus, and then he spent about 10 years, give or take, all this is rough math, um, in uh, Tarsus. And so in that time, I would arguably say that what's been happening is God has been putting together inside of him um, a full-orbed understanding of the Old Testament and what's coming with the New Testament and this uh, shift into this Jewish-Gentile church that's going to become a worldwide movement. And all of a sudden, um, Paul, who has been studying and ruminating on all the Old Testament scriptures, he would have had most of them even memorized, is suddenly coming to grips with the reality. So when Barnabas shows up into his cramped hot little workshop, and Paul is there sewing with his little needles and he's making these tents. All of a sudden, Barnabas says, it's time to go. And I'm guessing that Paul went, it's about time. I've been getting ready for almost 13 years. I've been sitting here wasting my time. I can't believe it. So he goes with Barnabas and they taught great numbers of people. What are they teaching the people? Yeah, about Jesus. And what else? Do they have the New Testament? No, they're writing it like right now. Like, as it's happening. It's so cool. So they're teaching them the Old Testament. They're using all the Old Testament text to show who King Jesus is. So, and Acts is being written as this is happening. Okay. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Isn't that interesting? So the Antiochians, that's not right, but the people of Antioch were famous for nicknames and jest, and they, they called them this um, after, the, after the original person who led the movement, whose name was... Christ. 
Christian. Okay, Christians, First in Antioch, verse 27. During this time, some prophets. Now, if you're not a Bible person or a church person, a prophet is someone who um, speaks uh, on behalf of the Lord, either foretelling or foretelling, and that can be, it can also, New Testament prophecy is someone who speaks to comfort, um, encourage, or edify. So if someone comes to you and, and says, man, I really see this gift inside of you. It's really great. I think God's probably using it. You should step out in faith there. Is that, or could that be prophetic? Yeah. Now, sometimes in the church, we sling that word all over and it makes us go, ooh. But sometimes when someone is delivering you truth that edifies, encourages, or comforts, that's the, I think it's 1 Corinthians 14 something, but I don't have it in my notes. Um, But that is the biblical definition of prophecy. So here we go. During this time, so what time? While Barnabas and Saul are teaching. Okay. So some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They actually went up. I don't know why it says came down, but that's, that's you know, Bible language. Uh, verse 28, one of them named Abigail stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Verse 29, the disciples, now who are the disciples? Who are the disciples? Yeah, Jesus had disciples. Who else? Here's what I'm getting at. If you're in Jesus, are you a disciple? What this means is the church members at Antioch, everybody, the church members at Antioch, the disciples. In other words, if you're walking with Jesus, you're a disciple. Now, we're all not going to be apostles. There's only 12 original ones. So that's not the deal here. But all of us are called Disciples, men, women, young, old, if you're in Jesus and he's in you, you're a disciple. And now I've got news for you too. If you're here today and you're like a doubter or an atheist or a skeptic or whatever, awesome. I'm so glad you're here. If just because you're here, you are in some sort of Jesus journey is what that says to me. And I would say, oh, you're probably on your way to becoming a disciple. Welcome to the family. Okay. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the believers living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift by the elders, by Barnabas and Saul. So who's going to carry the gift? Barnabas and Saul, yeah. So, okay, so they collected a bunch of stuff, and they've got, what, a chest or some bags, or we don't know how they transported it. But then Barnabas and Saul are going to ride, who knows, probably horses or donkeys or chariot, or we don't really know, um, but they're going to go to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to skip over to Acts 12, 25, and we're going to read four verses here, and then we're going to look at these six reasons I believe God chose Antioch. Acts 12, 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, what was their mission? Take the money to Jerusalem to the head of the church so that they could distribute it to whoever had need during the famine. Okay, so they returned from where? Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. We'll deal with him another day. Uh, 13 verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were some prophets and teachers, Barnabas uh, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mahan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's also Paul. <clears throat> Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, who's the Holy Spirit? God, Spirit of Jesus. So, so they are in a conversational relationship with him. Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had, what? Fasted and... 
prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. If you've ever seen us lay hands on somebody, that's why we do it. It's New Testament theology. Okay, so let's just, let's pause here. Let's um, zoom out for a minute. Um, And I would just say, as we think about Barnabas, I think Barnabas was really the first one to grasp the potential for the church in Antioch. He's also the first one to grasp the potential for this guy named Saul. And I would say this is where Paul cut his teeth, or Saul cut his teeth on um, as a teacher and as an evangelist. So here's what I want to know. What is it, and I pulled six things, but what is it about this church, what is it about the hearts of the people that so drew the person of Jesus, so drew the unseen kingdom of God that God decided to use it as the birthplace or the launch pad for all of Christianity? So I'd go back to our opening question. As a church, what does the Holy Spirit of God want us to see here? As a church, what does the Holy Spirit of God want us to know here? And as a church, what does the Holy Spirit of God want us to do here? Okay, six things. First thing I see is that they are outward focused. I mean, it's really simple. Go back to Acts 11. The church was started how? By people going, by, by the scattering, first of all, but then people actually going out and intentionally sharing with who? Gentiles, the Greeks. So they are outward focused right from the beginning. It's interesting because us as, for us as a church, Saltbox, um, if you look at what we believe under that section, uh, there, we actually say that we subscribe to the Luzan Covenant. And the Luzan Covenant is like just, it's, it's kind of like Bible speak, but um, a guy that I love and respect named Billy Graham, another guy that I love and respect named John Stott, uh, penned it with a bunch of other pastors and Christian leaders. And it essentially says that we believe as a church we're called to be outward focused. We're called to share Jesus with people all around us. And I think the first thing that drew uh, the Lord, drew the kingdom of heaven, drew the person of Jesus to the church in Antioch was that they were outward focused. They're more concerned with who they can send than who they can keep. They're more concerned with their capacity to send than their capacity to seat people. You hear me? They're more concerned with uh, what they can give away than what they can hoard. And you know, it's interesting because a guy named uh, William Temple actually said the church is the only society on earth that exists entirely for the benefit of those who are not its members. Let me say it again. The church is the only society on earth that exists entirely for the benefit of those who are not its members. In other words, we're here to edify, and I don't, you, there's, there's some more breadth and depth to that because we're called to make disciples and we're called to be growing in grace and, and growing in relationship with God and each other. But we exist to be outward focused, to share Jesus with people all over. So number one, what drew the kingdom of God to Antioch? They were outward focused. Number two, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 24. <clears throat> he was a good man, full of... The Holy Spirit and faith. Look at verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem. I mean, they, they're honoring what the Holy Spirit is saying and doing in their midst. I'd even look at 13, verse 2. I just read it, but we're just going to reference it. While they were there doing what? Worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is central to the church in Antioch, and because of it, God honored it and used it um, to launch the entire New Testament church. Third thing, 
they're, I, we use the word at Saltbox, um, intelligent in the word. And that, that's like a scary word. It's like, oh, you got to be intelligent. What I mean by that is like, if you're willing to read the word, ask the Lord what he's saying, allow the Lord to transform your own heart and life, and then get up and go do what it says. That's it. So, you know, we're, we're, um, when I would say intelligent in the word, we're seeking to know God in and through the word. We're calling people. 26. When they found him, they brought him in Antioch, and for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Okay, fourth thing. They are radically generous. I think this is so important. They are radically generous. Um, I don't, I mean, truly, I don't know that God cares all that much for your 10% or more or my 10% or more, but what he cares about so much is if you can't release a portion of your finances to him, do you think you can surrender your whole life? No. Like, you got to get that. You know how I often say, I'll go, I get on my knees because it's an external representation of an internal reality. I'm surrendering something to Jesus. The reason he says you give the first 10% is because it is indicative of the entire surrender of the whole. And God knows if you can, like, scrape that first bit off the top and hand it to him, guess what? The rest is his too. That's, that's the whole thing. God, I am, I am anti-prosperity gospel, but I am convinced that when you surrender your finances and give to him in obedience and accordance, you're radically generous like they were when this prophet stood up and said there's going to be a famine. And so what did they do? Collected a bunch of money, whatever, and then sent it on horseback down to Jerusalem. So when we are radically generous, that God will also be generous with us. I mean, you're activating the kingdom of God in your life. And I would also say, if you're unwilling to give, and I'm not like it has to be 10%. Some people come to me and go, Michael, I can't, I can't afford to give. Oh, great. What can you afford to give? I mean, I've had somebody go, I can give probably $10 a week. And I said, great. Start there. Just be faithful and see what God does. Just be faithful. You know, and I had somebody go, I can't at all. And I said, well, tell me something you do every week. Well, I get a cup of coffee. And I was like, what if you cut your coffee and put in your $2.99? Like, just give. Just do it. Just be faithful and see what God does. So, number one, they're outward focused. Number two, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Number three, they're becoming intelligent in the word. Number four, they're radical in their generosity. Number five, they're extravagant in worship and prayer. Go back to 13. They're, uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. I mean, amazing. We're actually going to do as a church, we're going to call a 40-day fast over Lent this year. So coming up um, in the new year uh, on its way up to um, Easter. We'll share more about that. But we're going to fast and we're going to pray and we're going to seek him. And the, the point of fasting is kind of similar to me getting on my knees or us giving of our money. You are denying something in yourself physically to create space and to make room for the kingdom of God to move in and through you. So when we worship God, when we surrender it all, when we fast and pray, all of a sudden you are creating space for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to show up and work in and through your life. Some of you might go, Michael, we worship a long time here. Yeah, we do, because I want to know Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, sometimes I'm like, I wish we could just keep worshiping and I don't have to get up there and talk. I'd rather, I'd rather worship Jesus, but we also worship him in the word. We worship him out by coffee. We worship him by giving him a hug. I mean, worship is not just song. Um, but I would say this church is extravagant. Antioch is extravagant in worship and in prayer. And then the last thing, my last point here, is they are empowering and diverse in their leadership. 
Really interesting. I'm going to read right through this. This is 13, chapter 13, 1, 2, and 3 that we just read. But you have Simeon called Niger. He's African. Um, This is a Roman name, so he probably moved in Roman circles, but he's probably a dark-skinned African. Um, Simeon called Niger. Secondly, you have Barnabas. Barnabas is a Jew from Cyprus. Thirdly, you have Simon or Lucius of Cyrene. Um, In my opinion, this is just my opinion. I can't prove it scripturally. But in my opinion, this is the man that carried the cross of Christ. It's literally what it says. A man of Cyrene, Simon by name, was caught by the Roman soldiers and compelled to bear the cross of Jesus. That's Matthew uh, 27. Um, You can also look up Mark 15 or Luke 23. But Cyrene was in Libya, North Africa. Um, So you have Simon of Cyrene, who's also an African. Um, Then you have Mayen, the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. So he's got like aristocracy and politics running in in his blood. And then lastly, you have Paul, the Jew, Pharisee of Pharisee, trained rabbi, and exquisite tent maker. Why did God choose Antioch? Because they're outward focused. They allow the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're becoming intelligent in the word. They're radical in their generosity. They're extravagant in worship and prayer. And they're empowering and diverse in their leadership. Worship team, would y'all come back out? I'm going to reread Acts 11:21 as they come out. Acts 11.21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. As we close in worship here, I would love for us to all posture our hearts. And if you're new to faith or you're a doubter or a questioner or whatever, that's no problem. Welcome. But for those of us who are in the Jesus journey here, part of this church, I would love for us to posture our heart and mind and go, Father, would you do anything and everything to allow your gracious hand to rest on our church? Holy Spirit, what do you want us to see? What do you want us to know? And what do you want us to do? If you'll stand with me, we're gonna close in a song. Prayer team, if you would make your way to the front. If you need prayer for anything, healing, finances, interpersonal stuff, family stuff, anything you need prayer for, we would love to pray with you. These people up front are not perfect, but they do love Jesus. I'm going to be up here too if you want to surrender your life to King Jesus. If you've never started a relationship with him, we'd love to pray with you and talk to you. God is real and he is here. And I think he is moving in our midst. Amen? Let's worship the Lord. change to
never failed me yet. So a friend of mine, Rob, came up here and he said, Michael, I think there might be some people in the room that feel like God has failed them. Maybe they're disappointed with God. They've given up on God. We're going to close the service out here, but if that's you and you want special prayer, I'm going to hang out right here with Rob. And we'd love to pray for you. If you go, man, I feel like God's failed me. We would love to pray for you specifically. Father, as we exit this place on this Sunday, Father, would you speak to each of us, your kids, your people, your church, your bride, your saints? What do you want us to see? What do you want us to know? And what do you want us to do? And Father, may I pray a bold and courageous prayer that you would fashion Saltbox Church in the way that you fashion the Church of Antioch. And may it always be more about what's happening inside our hearts than what we're looking like or managing appearances on the outside. Father, would you fill this place with your person, your presence, and your glory. God, we trust you and we look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, as this church exits today, may they sense your face and countenance shining upon them, leading them, going before them, and coming behind them. Amen and amen. We don't move until December 17th. Everybody say, December 17th. Not September, not October, not November. We're still going to be here. Don't, don't go tell anybody. We're not moving until December 17th. Good enough? We have a Saltbox Connect after this. If you want to hang out and find out more, we'd love to share with you. We love you. Go with Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.